Our scripture passage this evening comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Um, At this stage in the history of the people of Israel, Israel still has no king. No king but the Lord, that is. And this chapter where we find ourselves is the really the end of the period of the judges. Um, Israel is only a few chapters now from demanding a king of their own. But you perhaps remember where we left off last, where we saw the death of Hophni and Phinehas, just as God had said that they would die. And then we saw the news as it came to Eli, who fell over, crushed under his own weight. And then finally, Phinehas' wife was about to give birth. She hears the news. She hears that not only has her husband died, not only has her father-in-law died, not only have the Philistines defeated Israel in battle, but also the Ark of the Covenant of God. The very symbol of God's own presence has been taken by the enemies of God. And her response is to despair in her moment of death. And so as she is dying, she names her child no glory, no weight. So I want you, as we're reading this passage tonight, make sure you don't underestimate just how low things feel for the people of Israel right now. This isn't the lowest they've ever gone. Objectively speaking, I still think the ending of Judges is the lowest they ever get. But it could be the lowest that they've ever felt. And it's in the midst of this kind of defeat and sorrow that we find Israel as we read 1 Samuel chapter 5 this evening. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon And put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. 
and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. But there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray. Oh God, help us in our blindness. Help us in our sin. Help us in our absolute need tonight. We were born in sin, and as such, even our minds resist your word and what you have to say. So send your spirit, open our eyes, cast your light upon the text. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John Currid was a professor at RTS. A few years ago, he wrote a book called Against the Gods. And in that book, John Currid analyzed the writings of the Old Testament. And one of the arguments that he makes was that the purpose of the Old Testament was not just to, uh, to tell us what happened and to present us the truth of the matter, but was also, it had a dual purpose, which literature in the ancient Near East had, which was to demonstrate the superiority of Yahweh over the false gods. And so one of the things Currid says is that this book wasn't just written to tell us what happened, but to show us why Yahweh is superior to every other deity, especially that would have been observed in the ancient Near East, over the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and so on. Because remember, this was a time of incredible theological diversity. Every territory you went into had some sort of different belief system than the one you just left. If you went left Philistine territory and you went to Nineveh, you would find completely different deities being worshipped and so on. And there's some overlap here with our own age because we live in a time of incredible theological and religious diversity as well. I mean... Think about this. As we're reading the narrative tonight, it's very easy for us to imagine that this is a very different time and place. And yet here we are. We live in a land with incredible religious freedom. You can have a a mosque, a Mormon temple, a Catholic church, and a Baptist church all on the same block, potentially. Um, And so because of that, because of this religious diversity, all of these ideas and belief systems are competing with each other. On an intellectual level, we're not trying to smash each other. We're not trying to destroy each other's buildings. Um, We have not, as a church, yet invested in a trebuchet to knock down the Catholic Church across town, for example. Because that's not how we settle these things. (laughs) Um, At our best, when we're engaged with those around us, we're going to find ourselves interacting with theological systems that seem strange to us, even. Well... In Currid's book, Against the Gods, he argues that the Old Testament was a book that was meant to serve many purposes. But one of those purposes was to say, yes, these people follow many gods. These people have many different belief systems, but there is only one that is true and right. And in the end, of course, the Old Testament is telling us Yahweh is the only one who is true and right. And in tonight's passage, God uses what Israel thinks is this terrible defeat. So terrible that this woman would name her child, the glory is gone. God uses that defeat 
as his opportunity to, in a sense, go behind enemy lines and show the Philistines in a tangible, invisible way that he is the God of gods and he is the Lord of lords. And as we look at this, by the way, don't take your eyes off of the context. Because over and over again in this, in this narrative, the presence of the ark is an incredible defeat to the Philistines. And it's an incredible defeat to their god Dagon. And, you know, it starts out with them not thinking it's going to be that way. And then meanwhile, think about what's happening. We don't ever see Israel in the narrative. We never see Israel. They never come up. They're not mentioned in the least bit, except for the fact that God is the God of Israel. But Israel never shows up. There are no Israelite heroes to show up. There is no Samson to rip the gates off of the city and drag the Ark of the Covenant back or anything like that. Instead, Israel is wringing its hands. You could imagine, right, wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to get the Ark of the Covenant back? And so keep in mind that Israel is in a world of hurt at at the moment. They're really smarting from this terrible loss. But all the while, Israel is hurting and wringing its hands. Notice this, Yahweh is not. In fact, the text never puts it this way. But I think I'm tempted to say, while Israel is weeping and wringing its hands, Yahweh is having the time of his life single-handedly terrorizing these Philistines and making their lives as miserable as he possibly can. It is a pleasurable passage to read. It is so fun to read. Uh, I hope you think the same thing. But there are three things that Yahweh brings in the passage tonight. He brings confusion to God's enemies. He brings suffering to God's enemies, and he brings fear to God's enemies. First, God brings confusion to his enemies. In verses 1 to 5, the ark gets captured. Think about how the Israelites cheered when the ark first showed up. The passage actually said that the ground shook because they cheered so much. Think of how superstitious the Israelites were about using this ark as a weapon in battle. They win this thing in battle. The, the Philistines win this thing in battle fair and square. In their minds, they, they must have the ultimate weapon now. You know, picture the Nazis if they got their hands on a nuke in the middle of World War II, um, except maybe they don't have, know how to use it. <laughs> um, so they, they get their hands on this thing. They don't know what it's supposed to do, but they, they take the ark on a bit of a road trip. They go from Ebenezer all the way to Ashdod. Remember, Ebenezer's where the, they won the battle against the Israelites. They take the ark. They go to Ashdod. It's about 30 miles southwest of where, they, where it was. So they, think of it like this. They're very deep into the Philistine territory here. Um, you know, Again, to stick with the Nazi analogy, imagine if the Nazis captured this, this nuke and then brought it into Berlin. That's kind of what's happening here. So you could just imagine the optimism of these Philistines as they've captured this object and all the ideas and expectations that must have accompanied this haul. When it gets to Ashdod, they bring the ark into the temple of their own god, Dagon. Now, maybe you haven't heard of Dagon. We talk a lot about Baal, but not a whole lot about Dagon. Baal was the god of the harvest. He was the god of fertility. If you wanted to have babies... If you wanted to have, have grain at harvest time, then you turned your attention to Baal and you gave sacrifices to him. So we hear a lot about Baal and we'll continue to hear a lot about Baal, um, but we don't hear as much about Dagon. Now, 
Baal and Dagon both were pictured as physical deities. They weren't like invisible spirits the way we think of, of God. Um, they thought of, of these deities as these giant almost beasts that strode across the land thundering as they walked. And so uh, Dagon was known as the father of Baal. So as important as Baal is to them, Dagon is probably even more important. And if you look up Dagon, if you ever do any research to see what was Dagon like, the picture that they draw, the picture that they had of, of Dagon was he was like a fish god. He basically looked like a merman. He had a, a, a wise old man beard, a long white beard, and then he had the body of a fish. Which might seem really funny for the father God for these people. But remember, the Philistines were the sea people. They were the people who immigrated from the sea. They came from from the Mediterranean. We don't know how far up the coast. Some people think they lived in the Aegean, around where Greece is. And they came all the way in. And so for them, you could imagine their father God would be sort of a fish god. It sounds funny to us. We wouldn't be very intimidated by that. But they certainly were. And my own suspicion is they have no idea what they're doing with the ark. They have no earthly idea what they're doing. Um, They may want the ark to sit beside Dagon. That's where it says in the text that the ark sat. There are two possibilities as I see it. On the one hand, they may be saying, hey, maybe Yahweh and Dagon will be together now. Maybe they'll be like a team. Maybe they will uh, beat up the Israelites for us or something like that. Now they have Yahweh on their side. Um, The other possibility is they're giving Yahweh as an offering to Dagon. Maybe they want to devastate Yahweh, maybe devastate Israel, and they think that putting the ark in the temple is going to devastate the ark. I I actually think it's the second. I don't really think it's the first. It's hard for me to imagine that they would still keep calling him the God of Israel if they think he's with them now. So that at no point do they ever adopt Yahweh as their God. At no point do they talk about Yahweh as their God. They keep calling it objectively the Ark of the God of Israel. And so because of that, I think what happens here is they think they're offering Yahweh to Dagon. And instead, they're just delivering Dagon up to Yahweh. They're doing it the other way around. And so the people rise up the next morning and the statue of Dagon is on his face. So what do they do? They do what everybody who has their own gods has to do. They prop it up themselves. And that's what happens in verse 3. Their God has to be propped up. And then the next day the same thing happens. This time the head is gone and his hands are gone. He cannot think and he cannot work. He cannot act. God is showing them in every respect that this is an absolutely neutered God that they have. He is incapable of doing anything in the face of Yahweh. See, they thought they had captured Yahweh, and it's starting to look like maybe Yahweh has captured them. They just rolled this Trojan horse right into Ashdod, and now they're starting to face the consequences of it. And the passage takes a moment, sort of almost as an aside. And they make this point, they say that to this day, so to this day is whenever Samuel was written, they say to this day, the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod. Now, here's what's interesting. There's biblical evidence that this is the case. About 300 years after these events, if you read the book of Zephaniah, in Zephaniah 1.9, 
It calls the Philistine people those who leap over the threshold. It's an odd phrase. And if you didn't read this passage first and you had forgotten this passage, if you'd gotten to Zechariah 1.9 and you had read it, you would have said, why did it call the Philistine people those who leap over the threshold? And the answer is, it's because they're still doing this. They still remember when Yahweh came in and devastated Dagon. They remember when Yahweh came behind enemy lines and humiliated their God. I would just say another thing in passing is the Philistines really believed in Dagon. It wasn't like some formality that they had to go through. It's not like they're just going through the motions. They really believed in this false deity and they thought they owed him their lives and and dedication. And they thought that if they didn't do those things that they wouldn't be able to reproduce, they wouldn't be able to live, that they wouldn't have harvests. And I think there's just a bit of a lesson here for our own day, which is that it is possible to be genuinely confused and genuinely wrong. Probably the thing that people value more than anything else in our own day is sincerity. I would say there were generations back where the thing people valued most was truth. What is true? Today, the thing people value most is sincerity. It doesn't matter if you're right or if you're wrong, as long as you are sincere. And that is certainly the case here. The people of the Philistines are very sincere, and yet they, it totally clashes with the reality of God as he totally, embarrassingly trounces Dagon. They are sincerely wrong about Dagon, and their belief crashes directly into a wall called reality. For many folks, reality is a rude awakening. That is certainly the case for the worshipers of Dagon, but it's true in our own day as well. But the first thing that God brings tonight is confusion to God's enemies. Second tonight, God brings suffering to his enemies. What begins to happen is not just that the gods of the Philist- God of the Philistines is humiliated, but the people themselves start to experience repercussions. There is an outbreak of tumors, not just in Ashdod, but in the area all around. I don't know why. Maybe I just have a mean sense of humor. I just think the phrasing of what happens here is funny. It says, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said. So they they, they decide to do something because they saw how things were. Now, how are things? Well, Dagon is humiliated and thrown down. We're all getting tumors. This ark is radioactive. Get this thing out of here. That's all they can think. They don't even know how it works. Or what the mechanism is by which they're getting these tumors. They don't know what exactly physically caused Dagon to fall down. All they know is the gears in their minds are turning. And you could just imagine how they're trying to think this through. And they almost maybe tell themselves that who knows why that statue keeps falling over. But then they start to experience direct physical consequences. And that is when they wake up. That is when they're startled. Physical suffering has a way of, of doing that sometimes, of shaking us out of our reverie, waking us up. C.S. Lewis said this, and I say it all the time. You probably remember me saying it, but I still think it's a good quote. That's why I keep saying it. But C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to wake a deaf world. 
That's what he does. He wakes up the Philistines with physical pain, with tumors. And maybe you've seen that in your own life. When things are not going well, we aren't always very reflective. When things are going really well, when we're doing good, when our life is smooth, when there don't seem to be a lot of bumps in the road, we feel the most self-assured and we feel the least reflective about what's going on in our lives. But here is the thing. Pleasure and success make us feel independent, but when we suffer, we start to ask the big questions. Why is this happening? What is going on in my life? And the more things that happen to us that are out of our control, the more God drives us to our knees. I can think of ways that suffering and and injuries in my own life have made me hit the brakes and turn my gaze back to God. And maybe you've had similar experiences in your life. Well, God has turned his megaphone on the Philistines. And at least temporarily it works. They start to think theologically about what's going on. Listen to verse 7. The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they're starting to interpret the sufferings theologically. They're seeing it through God's eyes. God has routed them now. They are on the run. We have to get this thing out of here. That's their response. Think about this now. Think about how God has gotten them from point A to here we are now in point B. All of it has been God's single-handed work. There hasn't been a single Israelite in the narrative since verse 1. And we don't see the Israelites come back until God, re- until God gets the ark back. The first time we see, the, see Israelites is they see a cart with the ark on it coming toward them. It's being delivered back to them through no action of their own. Everything that happens here is God's doing. Now, I hope this doesn't sound irreverent of me. I I don't mean it. I don't mean to be making light of what God does here. But I like this passage too much not to have a little fun with it. And one of my guilty pleasures in life is watching old 80s action movies. Um, Just really dumb movies that just they usually revolve around. A one-man army. You know, there's one guy with a machine gun, you know. (laughs) It's Chuck Norris or it's Arnold or it's Stallone, you know. And what do they do? The storyline is almost always the same. They go behind enemy lines. They decimate the bad guys. And that just seems, it's not as much of a thing now. They aren't releasing a bunch of one-man army movies anymore. But, you know, it's not a huge cultural loss at this point. Um, It's not like Rambo 2 is high art. Um, why do I mention these 80s movies? Because tonight is the moment where Yahweh pulls a Rambo. It's where he, by himself, goes behind enemy lines. He devastates the enemy. He throws down their false god. He tosses a grenade behind himself. And then he gets them to buy him a one-way ticket back home. Which we'll see that next week. The second thing we see tonight is the suffering of God's enemies all by himself. Without the help of any man, he brings immense suffering to the Philistines. It is delicious. It is wonderful. It is our God altogether wonderful. Third tonight, we see the fear of God's enemies. Think about what's happened. Yahweh has attacked their God. He has attacked their bodies. He has attacked their whole territory, according to the text. You know, everything that makes them feel secure at this point 
is called into question. The passage already said in verse 6 that, that he terrified them. Then the passage says even more. They take the ark of God to Gath, which is about a six-hour walk for these folks, depending on how fast they're going. They may be going slower out of respect for the ark, but it's a six-hour walk. And when they show up in town, the very first thing the text says is, it caused a great panic. First comes the panic, then come the tumors. So it turns out the panic was warranted. They weren't just being paranoid. They weren't being hypochondriacs. This was real. So then they say, well, it can't stay here. So they take it from Ark, from Gath to Ekron. And then when they show up in Ekron, the people of Ekron accuse the people of Gath of attempted murder. They say, you guys, they basically say, you guys brought this dirty bomb into our town. What are you thinking? And then in Ekron, the the author says there was a deathly panic throughout the city. If you wanted to to think of a contemporary uh, example of it, this would be like riot conditions in the city, right? People are freaking out. It, It kind of looks like these riots left people dead, judging from the fact that the text says the panic was deathly. So people are hurting each other. They're in such a panic. God brings... Fear on these people. He does it without an army. He does it without any soldiers. He does it without anyone else to come and, and speak to the city. He doesn't send a Jonah type figure to declare to them what's going on. Instead, he does all of it single handedly. God's enemies are a fearful people. When they are the most rational, they are the most fearful. I mentioned this, I think, last week, but Calvin says, he who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustle of a falling leaf. Fear is and should be the regular state of God's enemies. What's happening here in Ekron, what's happening in in Gath, what's happening in the territory of the Philistines is a glimpse inside the heart of all those who despise God when they really understand their situation. Should it really come as a surprise to us that in our own age, as people come to more openly despise God, more openly resist God, that they are now as heavily medicated, totally distracted, constantly amused, and totally miserable as they seem to be. When we're made for God, but then we set ourselves against Him, we can only limp along on our own for so long before the little solutions that we've proposed for ourselves start to fall apart. Adam and Eve made, made leave um, clothing of leaves for themselves, but eventually those leaves start to fall apart. And that's what seems to be happening for these Philistines. Tonight, God's enemies are in fear. Doesn't this passage teach us tonight that among other things, We shouldn't judge God on short-term gains and short-term losses. A few years ago, there were some missionaries. They went to a people in the South Pacific called the Taliabo people. I remember Elias Medeiros showed it to us in our evangelism class. And one of the things you saw in the video was they went to the Taliabo people. And these are people who've never heard the gospel before. They've never heard of God. They've never heard the story of Scripture And so when the missionaries came to them, they had to start from scratch. They had to build like with building blocks. 
And so they laid down the building blocks and started to teach the people how God created the world and God created you. And then they taught the people about the fall of mankind. And they taught the people about why are you getting sick? And why do you have trouble getting along with each other? And why do those other tribes sometimes hurt you and take your things? And they start to go through those things. And then they get to the New Testament and they teach them about Jesus. And they they taught the Taliaba people about what Christ was like and how good he was and about the miracles that he did. And then they got to the death of Jesus. Now, this is the part where you and I, we hear about the death of Jesus and we think, oh, the death of Jesus is sad, but there's a resurrection coming. Well, when the Taliaba people hear the gospel for the first time, they don't know that story. And they don't know there's a resurrection coming. And what they recognized was when they told them about the death of Jesus, the people reacted with despair. Um, And the way the missionaries described it, they said the Taliaba people refused to talk. They said that when Jesus died... Their hope died with him. I mean, just think about this for a moment. This is a totally reasonable reaction to the death of Jesus. You know, we are so used to to saying Jesus died, but he rose again. That we very rarely do we just dwell on the death of Jesus and what that really means. What the solitude and the abandonment, uh, abandonment of the cross really means. What would it be like to witness the death of Jesus And not have the benefit of the big picture. Not knowing what comes next. Not knowing what God was really up to. I would suggest it would be a very bleak, very dark, very hopeless situation. And the thing is this. The long view helps us to think upon God's dealings with us. If we don't have the long view in mind, then without the long view in mind, the Israelites would have been reduced to despair. And this isolated defeat where they lost the Ark of the Covenant for seven months, it would have felt like the end of the world. How often do we need to be reminded of God's long-term work with us? I I need that reminder not to get hung up on momentary losses and momentary disappointments in the Christian life. I need to remember that oftentimes what looks like a defeat in our life is really God's opportunity to show his grace and show his power towards me. How often do we need to be reminded that sometimes a victory isn't always a victory and a defeat isn't always a defeat? If you had been in Israel when the ark was taken, if you had been in the shoes of Phinehas' wife, for example, you would have probably been tempted to despair just like she does. This would feel like a loss. Think about it, put the shoe on the other foot for a moment. Pretend you live in Ekron. Pretend you live in Gath. Pretend you live in Ashdod. You know what you would have been doing after this battle was over? You would have been dancing in the streets. And you would have been celebrating as this giant golden ark is carried into your territory. This is some amazing spoils. And you would have said, this is victory. We won. Neither of those reactions gets to last very long. Our God is in the game of reversing our expectations. He takes what we think is happening and so often he flips it around. Think of Psalm 30. You have turned for me my morning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Think of Jeremiah 31, 13. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. 
Or it works the other way as well. Lamentations 5.15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. See, by the end of the ark's seven-month adventure in Philistine territory, the the Philistines' dancing has been turned to mourning. They've, They've died. People have died because of this ark. They say, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. And God's people don't know it yet, but he's about to turn their mourning into dancing. And he's about to turn their sorrow into rejoicing. And all of these things, keep in mind, this was God's doing. Verse 11, the hand of God was very heavy there. Think about this. The ark of God doesn't stay in Ekron. It goes back to Israel. Israel doesn't stay down. God raises them up. As much as the Taliabo people mourned because of the death of Jesus, he didn't stay in the grave either, did he? No, God raised him up. This episode tonight is just classic Yahweh. This is vintage Yahweh. This is how he works. He keeps all the credit for himself. He shows his power by reversing defeat. Reminding us that this work is his work. And we are just along for the ride. Let's pray. Father, we love to know that you work all things for the good of your people. But there can be no greater good than for us to have you as our God and to see you as glorious and powerful. Help us, Lord, because we can get discouraged. We all experience what seem to be defeats. We all know what it is to live in fear that maybe we are the ones at the wheel. Maybe all of this does depend on us. Instead, Lord, help us to trust you with our lives and to remember that you are the God who wins victory without the help of any man. You are the God who loves us such that you sent your son to die upon the cross, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. You are worthy of our trust. Help us indeed to trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.